Hello, Nathan Foster here with a bonus podcast. As you know, the Renovare Book Club starts soon. Of course, you can register at renovare.org slash book club. But in the meantime, Carolyn and Chris thought you might like to hear how the books are selected and a little about each book. What follows is a conversation with our Director of Education, Carolyn Ahrens, and Renovare President, Chris Hall. I'll be back on Monday with a regular episode of the Renovare Podcast. Enjoy. Hey, we get to talk about books today. I know that's a I subject. like to talk about books. Oh, man, I was going to say you hate that topic, but I, I, I couldn't even books. get that out. I know you love books so much. And it's just about book club season time. Here yes, at it is. Amazing. And as you know, we have quite a uh, belabored yet joyful process selecting our books every year because everybody on our team loves books so much. Yeah. And I was wondering if you would share when we are going back and forth about what books to include in the club, what what you're looking for. What what do you hope for when we're selecting books? I'm hoping that at least one of the books would be a book by a dead person. <laughs> <laughs> Someone, you know, <laughs> a, you know, a book that's that's proven its worth across the years. Uh, you know, that I spent a lot of time with dead people because I spent a lot of time with the ancient Christians and the church fathers and mothers and so on and some of those medieval folk and so on. So I think having at least one book um, that's proven the test of time, yeah. that the, the entire, probably the entire Christian community, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, are saying, this is a book worth reading. It's proven itself. This is really, if one drinks wine, this is really, this is really tested wine. Right. Um, it's in line with what I might call the history of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's working in the history of the church. So one book like that, uh, an old book that is simply old. Well, and actually, if I can interject, usually our guideline is at least two books like that. We usually try two, to do two books. We usually try to do two old, two new. This year we broke the rules a little bit. Maybe we'll explain why in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't even realize till I came to work at Renovari that one of the old kind of catchphrases for Renovari had been giving the church back to the church, you know, this, and then I've heard you say what you just said a couple minutes ago, that the Holy Spirit has a history. So that's for sure part of our mandate to do, well, to do some we, old books. Well, maybe one of the reasons we uh, broke the rules this year, I'm not on the committee. <laughs> I'm, I'm not allowed. <laughs> so maybe one of the reasons we broke the rules for, for the books would be um, the history of the Holy Spirit in Dallas's life. Right, right. Because one of the books is uh, Becoming Dallas Willard. Yeah, that's a And, ha- and cool how the Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit worked in Dallas's life. We wouldn't do that for everybody. But because of Dallas's uh, crucial role in Renovari for so many years, to, to uh, was, he, was that the book that took up the space of the other old book? We, we can say so, yes. We can this, say so. <laughs> actually, it was probably more more the fourth book in the season, which we could talk about in a minute. Oh, okay. But, but I love that take on it. So actually, why don't we do that? Why don't we talk about each of the books in the club and okay, that sounds good. why we're excited about them and mm-hmm. uh, and how they made our list. So yes, the first one is Becoming Dallas Willard by our good friend Gary Moon. And uh, have you had a chance to read it yet? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, me too. It was I think- 
Go ahead. Actually, I, actually, I think I've read it um, more than one time because I had read it just when it came out. Or may, Gary might even have sent me a, a copy of the uh, pre-publishing manuscript. And when I when I read it, I was so encouraged by this book uh, because I saw I saw uh, Dallas is a how can I put it a real human being. You know, with a story, strengths, weaknesses, uh, significant pain early in his life, losing his mom at a young age, in in some ways, kind of be moving from household to household, trying to find his way, and then finding out he's got this mind that's just on fire. I mean, what kind what kind of a kid is it who's out in a cornfield in Missouri with a copy of Plato's Republic in his back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that's really yeah. something. That's really something to think about. And then um, to see how he grew up and matured and um, became this wonderful voice for Renovari for so many years. Yeah. So um, it's a very special book. Yeah. And the, ch the chance to get his know, get to know his. Uh, wife actually much better than I, I, I ever knew Dallas. Hmm. Um, to this day, I, I kind of yell at myself uh, for being shy hmm. because, because I met, uh, I met Dallas, uh, I think first in, in Denver in it must've been 20, uh, 2006, this big convention where I was doing some little seminar on desert spirituality and Dallas was there and Richard were there. But, you know, the, so many people wanted to talk to them, and I just felt a little shy, so I didn't. And then there were at least four times when he and I crossed paths at an academic conference where, in fact, there was one time where we were in the same car together, traveling to an InterVarsity Press little, little dinner with six of us there. And he sat at one corner of the table, I sat at the other, and we exchanged pleasantries. But... Um, Never had a substantial talk, hmm. and then and then there was one time when I was when I was uh, speaking to a, a, a group at Wheaton at a, a conference, and he was sitting in the audience, and there he was listening to what I was saying. Who knows if what I was saying was any good? Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, there's Dallas. Where I have yet to talk to that man for any length of time, and it just never happened. So hmm. the, what the what the book did for me is it opened up his world to me in a way that I. I deeply appreciate it, and I think our readers will appreciate it. Yeah, I had a similar experience with it. I, I never got to know Dallas personally and, uh, of course, engaged with his work so much at the Renovari Institute and did before I came to Renovari. And so to get, was a, a real gift to get to <coughs> know a little bit more about his life, a lot more about his life. I think Gary did a really wonderful job. Like you said, getting to the humanity, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, so I had I had a copy of the manuscript too, and embarrassed the stranger on the plane sitting next to me as I blubbered my my way through it <laughs> on, a, on a plane. Yeah. So yeah, there so there are parts of it that that are so heartwarming. I took it to the beach with me this past summer down in North Carolina, and we just sat out on the on the beach with the family and without in the ocean, and and particularly uh, what, what I was interested in was. Uh, the end of his life mm. and how he navigated the end of his life so well before God uh, with courage and perseverance and sensitivity. Just wonderful. What a wonderful guy. What a wonderful person. Wonderful image bearer. Yeah. Alive and well today, I'd say. 
Absolutely. And I love that at Renovari, Becoming Dallas Willard is a beach read. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> oh, 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 that's right. I didn't love it. I hope that's good. Yeah, I think it is good. Okay. All okay. Right. Let's let's talk about the next book in the season. So after we have feasted on Becoming Dallas Willard, which Gary himself is going to lead us through, which should be really fun. Then we're going to look at Glittering Vices by Rebecca DeYoung. You want to, uh, you've read this book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I read this book. Uh, I think the first time I read this book was uh, when it came out, I think it was published. When was it published? Let's take a look here. It was published back in 2009. So um, I was still at Eastern University. I think I actually used this book in one of the classes I was teaching there, maybe an upper division class on spiritual formation. And what's so helpful about uh, Rebecca and her writing is she being a reformed scholar, is able to enter so empathetically into uh, Catholic scholars, and particularly the, the Catholic folks like Aquinas. She's an expert on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, to enter into his world and other, other uh, Catholic writers and then into the classical philosophical tradition behind some of the reflection on these vices and communicate in such a way that a Protestant student who has no background in virtue studies or the issues that she's dealing with in this book, she can write about these vices in such a way, I saw it firsthand, that a student who's struggling with, perhaps, it can happen, laziness, mm-hmm. reads the chapter on sloth and runs into um, a, a detailed, accessible analysis of that vice in a manner where the student doesn't walk away feeling guilty in a way that doesn't bring life, but rather is just urged to take his or her life more seriously. More seriously. Why am I, why am I kind of, uh, in a manner of speaking, you know, sleeping through these college years? Not, not only literally sleeping for some students, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just not attentive, not attentive to uh, what the Lord might have for me here. So whether it's, you know, vainglory or sloth or gluttony or these different vices, she's really helpful. I think some of that insight is forged in her own, the courage, courage that she's showing in the midst of her own suffering, you know, with the illness that she's had for a while that some readers probably know about and others don't. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's like a book, I think, is one of those books that you could read every year with real benefit. So, that, so that's rare for a modern book. We get that with, with some of what Richard's written and some of what uh, Dallas has written, but I think that this book would be on that list. High praise indeed from our dead author advocate. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. and Rebecca yeah. is going to lead us through the book, so we're very grateful. She's already been sending us some of her resources, and they look, they look excellent. So I'm looking forward to reading it again, too. Challenging, not for people who don't want to change, you know? Who amongst us? The people who are listening to our voices doesn't want to change. Right. What was I going to say about uh, Rebecca? Accessibility, kindness. That's the kind of person she's, she is in terms of the few times I've talked with her and interacted with her. And it's so exciting that, that we actually, for the people who are still alive, that Gary Moon will be able to walk people through uh, the book he's written, that Rebecca will be able to walk folks through the book that she's written, 
and that Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove will be able to walk people through the book uh, that he's written. And unfortunately, the cloud of unknowing that person <laughs> is is no longer with us. But James Catford knows a lot about that book, so he'll be able to do a good job on that. Yeah, let's talk about that one. So, so book three in the club is when we uh, we do get to um, an author who is no longer living, and this book is is I feel like the cloud of no- unknowing is one of those books that gets referenced a lot, but maybe some of us have not gone as deeply with it as we would like or find it a, find it a little baffling. So do you have hopes and dreams for how we might engage with that book in the club this year? Yeah. Um, I'm not a contemplative. I've occasionally had times when I've quieted down from my active life enough to taste a little bit. Let me push back on that for a second, because I, I know that you, you have, think I am. Well, I know that you have a very consistent rhythm of silence, time, times well, of silence. And I guess that's life. true. So what, what I think that's an interesting Renovari conversation. What how are you defining a contemplative in order to well, say that you're yeah. not one? Well, I've been I guess I say that because I've been you know, I spent a lot of time with desert dwellers. I've been reading a book uh, just the past few days, uh, rereading a book by Scott Cairns called Journey to the Edge. He's an Orthodox writer, an American, and he's been spending a lot of time with the monks out on Mount uh, Athos in, in Greece, this island where you have so many different monasteries. When I, when I compare my life to those folks or to the desert dwellers or to the the person who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing, I can, I can really see that there's a, a certain level of activity and a noise in my life that's not present for them because the level of their, I think it's their vocation, the level of their attentiveness to prayer and, and constant immersion in prayer and use of something like the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, and of God have mercy on me. I think that experience is analogous to the experience of whoever this was who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing. And so when I look at my, my life, I, that's what I mean. I, I drink a little from that stream. Right. You know, you know, I get up fairly early in the morning and head off into the living room and just sit there for a long time. Mm-hmm. But well, a long time meeting, maybe an hour to three hours. It's not all that long, um, but but that's. But then I move into an active life during the daytime as as president of Renovari, inter- interacting with people such as you, um, donor work, all that's involved in yeah. in uh, helping helping to lead an, uh, a ministry like ours. So so that's what I meant by an active life. But but there's an invitation in this book. In fact. Uh, a few of the chapters deal specifically with the call for someone who leads that active life, but is sensing there might be something for her in the contemplative life and the contemplative tradition, this, this movement toward God, where as we draw nearer and nearer, we're seeing, but as we're seeing, we're increasingly realizing that what we're seeing and coming to know is indeed incomprehensible, mm-hmm. which doesn't surprise me because I wrote a, I wrote a book with a pal 
you know, on the mystery of God. And we talk about God's incomprehensibility as something that can be explored. But this is an exploration that's different, I think, from what we were describing. Hmm. Because we were talking about rational exploration. Hmm. And, and it seems to me like in the cloud of unknowing, we're moving into an awareness, a seeing, a depth, where when we're entering into it, we're not at that point, you know, rationally exploring it. James, Cat- James Catford knows a lot more about that in this book than I do. Yeah. Let me ask you, it was interesting to Brian Morikan, our colleague, our, uh, director of communication at Renovari, he mentioned in a recent digest that he's always had quite a bit of resistance to the cloud of unknowing. There's sometimes when he reads it, there's certain things that he just, he doesn't know if that's the right way into his life with God. And so if there are readers who experience that kind of resistance, what would, what would you say? And maybe this is a bigger question about how we read things that are challenging to us or that we have resistance to. The term I would use would be empathetic listening, Hmm. empathetic listening. Now, what that means is that, as we begin to experience something like cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is where the, the way that we've normally, all, all, maybe, maybe in an entire lifetime, the, the way that we've thought about the right way to think and the right way to move into reality with a big R is in some way being challenged by what we're reading. So for example, Brian wouldn't mind me saying this, you know, he's, he's grown up in an environment where how do you grow spiritually where, well, you know, you, you have got your Bible and you listen to a good sermon and you actually detect the text of scripture and you grow in your relationship with God. That's really good. That's really good. And I don't think that this writer would say it's not really good, but the way that this writer writes about uh, moving into the depths of God and as we move, move closer and closer, realizing that there's a depth here that we will never comprehend. Um, I think Brian would say he experienced cognitive dissonance. How does this world, the world of, how does the world of this book match up with my world? And that's, if it doesn't immediately match up, we'll experience that cognitive dissonance. And it makes us feel uncomfortable. Is, can this book be trusted? Is this just some strange man who's mm-hmm. gone off the deep end and so on? Or, or we might experience something that I've called aesthetic resistance. And uh, James Houston before me, aesthetic resistance. I just, which would be, I just don't like the way that it's written. Mm-hmm. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't like the categories he's using. And then we move into something called negative listening, where we start critiquing the book. Mm-hmm. And, and listening negatively, and it's, uh, before we really have earned the right to enter into that kind of critique, we are 10 pages into the book, we're already writing a review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's the, you know, that, I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think that's helpful. I think there's an invitation to us and to everybody in the book club. I do feel fairly strongly about this, to empathetic listening. And what that means is, before I'm going to critique, I'm going to take off my shoes and, and as effectively as I can put on an author's shoes and allow uh, an author's experience 
I'm going to enter empathetically with empathy into an author's um, world. Why, for example, the question, rather than an immediately uh, negative response, the question, well, I wonder why she wrote it that, that way. Mm. I wonder why he wrote it that way. Why didn't he write it in a way that I would like? And at that, at that point, the temptation really is to react, to react because we feel if, if I'm not defending my position at that point, somehow I'm letting God down. Right. Because I know what the right answer is at that point. I don't want to become, you know, a spineless, wishy-washy, whatever it might be. Right. Well, I don't, I don't think that's what empathetic listening is. It's not becoming spineless or wishy-washy. It's valuing somebody else's ideas enough and what they might be able to offer to, to us enough to, um, to value them, at least to the point of listening. And then here, here's, here's the key. Once, so, for example, once someone has uh, read The Cloud of Unknowing, or maybe Jonathan's book on um, uh, racism and so on. We get to the end of the book and we say, I don't think I agree. That's fine. That's fine as long as we've list, listened empathetically. And here's the, here's the ground rules. You have listened empathetically when you can sit down at a table. Imagine yourself sitting at a table and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove or Rebecca DeYoung or Gary Moon are sitting across from you and you represent your understanding of what they have written, not your critique. You represent to them what you believe their position to be. And they respond, that is indeed what I believe. And at that point, then, the critique can come and you say, appreciate the hard work. Here's why I disagree. Here's why I disagree. But most people, most people don't don't get to that point because it's hard. Right. Empathetic um, listening is hard. It takes patience. You have to you have to go slow, paragraph by paragraph, coming back to sections you don't agree with, coming particularly back to sections of a book that made you really mad. And then you have to ask, I think you have to ask at that point, well, why did that make me so angry? Right. What, or, or sections of a book that might make one fearful. What, why did that make me feel so afraid uh, or, or challenged? And my reaction was when, when we get challenged and feel cognitive distance, we'll get afraid, we'll get angry, we'll critique way too soon. So these, I think these are just, it's like a, Reading these books uh, or, or being in a book club is it, it's being willing to be in a community of readers who are willing to come together and read empathetically books that won't necessarily make them feel comfortable, but will will cause them to um, think more deeply about God. And in, in, in this particular uh, book club, think more deeply about issues of spiritual formation. Yeah, I was going to say that's one of the things I love about the club is that you can take take and some of our listeners have read Cloud of Unknowing and absolutely loved it. 
you know, so, so we're not just assuming that everyone will have resistance to any one of these titles. But I think books that are challenging or stretchy or, or that we experience cognitive dissonance with that, that is the real gift of the club is doing this in community, having some uh, resources to help us. I, I think in the case of Cloud of Unknowing, James is going to be, you know, he's so down to earth and, and uh, sort of pastoral in the way that he'll, he'll help us into a book. So I'm really excited. And, and, and one thing I would say, uh, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about there was a book we used in the Renovari Institute this past year that a lot of the students had resistance to. It was it was uh, Agnes Sanford's book on uh, yeah. on healing prayer, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of them disagreed uh, with some parts of the book, and actually I agreed with their disagreement. But what was interesting is we all persevered through it. We all tried to read it. Uh, empathetically, see what the Holy Spirit would have for it, be honest about the places where we weren't sure. And uh, when we got to the end, I can't tell you how many students said, there's still things I disagree with, but I'm noticing that my spiritual imagination around what God can do through our prayer has been expanded in ways I couldn't have anticipated and would have lost if I had shut down at my first points of resistance. So I think sometimes it's a revelation to even realize you don't have to agree with everything in a book for it to be an important part of your journey and and to invite you into, um, you know, an expanded imagination and and deeper engagement with with around life with God. That's right. I this doesn't mean that there are not bad books being written today. Right. There are, there are lots of bad <laughs> books be being r- r- bad <laughs> books being written today. Hopefully we just would choose them as a selection right. for, for the Renabari uh, book club. I, I, do, I do think with some of the books that are being written, whose shelf life I think will be relatively short, some of them just have really bad ideas in the books. They're bad ideas. They're misinformed ideas. Occasionally they're, what Dalton would probably call that's a stupid idea. Right. <laughs> that's a stupid idea. Let's call it what it is, right. but with as much kindness as possible. But what we're trying to do with the, um, the book club is sell, select books that the, the committee has carefully looked at and feels that these are worth, write, uh, worth reading. Uh, what well, not necessarily going to be ones that always bring a smile to somebody's face. Yeah. At points, yes. And, yeah, and actually, uh, re- listeners might be interested to know, what one of the things we're trying to do with our old book selections is we're looking at Richard at, in the new edition of Celebration of Discipline. Richard's given us a, a, a new annotated bibliography of books yeah, he thinks right. every believer should read. And so we're trying to um, kind of work our way through some of those. We've already done quite a few of them uh, in the club. but uh, It's cl- exciting. Yeah. As, each year, as each year goes by to see what one in a manner of speaking that we can check off the list. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So now let's talk about the fourth uh, book in the, in the season, which is maybe the most, uh, the one that will raise the most eyebrows. And it is, it is the one that we decided uh, instead of doing a second old book this season, we would do this book uh, because of some uh, burdens that were on Renovari's heart, I think around, um, some things going on, and particularly, and I, have in to, I have I have to fess up. 
Yeah, I, I have to fess up. I was the one who was really pushing this book. <laughs> not uh, not on the committee, but your vo- you were moved in your spirit at this I was, point. I was moved in my yes, spirit yes. to encourage us to read this book together. And, and I'm excited about it. So tell, tell people about it. So let me walk you walk through what I was thinking, some of my concerns, and um, a little bit about John Jonathan before we get to the book itself. Sure. So um, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is a former student of mine. Uh, I can remember Jonathan and uh, Shane Claiborne and Jonathan's wife, Leah, sitting in one of my classes, watching them, particularly Jonathan and Leah, who are just getting interested in one another. And he is uh, a very gentle, kind, loving person who I think, along with uh, Shane, who I think are hearing what I would call tonal qualities of the gospel that sometimes we don't hear. And not only do they hear them, but they're willing to uh, live them out in, in a way that is really quite striking. So for example, both of them feel very strongly about war and when the war was breaking out uh, in Baghdad, just before uh, fire and awe occurred, they were over there in Baghdad in Baghdad, playing with children, trying to model something differently to us regarding this particular issue of uh, warfare. Now, this is, so for example, you don't have to agree with Jonathan regarding this book or other issues. I disagreed and still to a certain extent disagree with them on issues of just war and so on. And some listeners will hear that and they'll be mad at me. But I think, I think that's, how, that's how we learn. We just continue to work through these issues. Why I thought we should read this book is because one of the streams that Richard writes about in Streams of Living Water, many listeners have read those, is a social justice stream. It's just one of the streams that's there. You have this huge river and then it's like... Um, to mix metaphors, Richard or River of Light, and then Richard took a prism up and broke that great river, the great tradition of the church, in, in different colors. And one of the colors is the social justice tradition. Well, anytime you start talking about issues of social justice, people are going to get mad. They're going to get mad. But, but uh, I think it's fair to say that Jesus also did. He was concerned about how image bearers were treating one another. And so in this particular instance, the issue of race in America, as much as we might like to look the other way, is a terribly pressing, sad issue with a long history. I only became more aware of this. Eastern University, when I first got to Eastern in 1991, was 27% African-American. So we were not number two in the state to um, Temple University. When I deemed the seminary, Palmer Theological Seminary, Palmer was 65% African-American. So I had the chance for three years, I had the chance to move into a world with which I was deeply unfamiliar, even though I'd been teaching at Eastern for a fair number of years. It was the chance to look out at the world through a different set of eyes by being in that community, the majority of which was African-American. And so what Jonathan has done is 
opened up this issue for us in a way that as apprentices of Jesus and uh, image bearers helps us to look at a pressing issue that I would argue Jesus is not happy about. And Jonathan offers a particular perspective that I think we, me, you, both white, can listen to. Now, Jonathan, Jonathan himself is, grew up as, as a, a white boy in the South. And now he's living in uh, Raleigh-Durham in a very small community called Rupa House in Walltown, which is an African-American community. And he's associate or a pastor in an African-American church. He really uh, has been willing to listen to a community, speak to him, about their lives in a country that has struggled and is continuing to struggle with the issue of racism. So, so when you bring all these factors together, I thought, here's a, here's a great chance for the Renovari community to, to read a book that can help us in this particular area, to, to be agents of reconciliation and love and uh, occasionally courage as we confront our present and our past and hopefully change the future in some way. That's really helpful. I I think if I've got the premise of Jonathan's book right, based on conversations with him, part of his thesis is that there's kind of a a, a distortion, a kink in the DNA of American Christianity that came from a time when um, many Christians used scripture, used their spirituality to justify slavery. And that even for people today who would say there's not a racist bone in my body, they are still heirs of that distortion and that DNA in ways that we're we're just blind to, that we can't can't even see. And so it's a massive social justice issue, but it's also a spiritual formation issue in terms of the growth, whatever color you are, the growth of your own soul and how uh how you, what the kind of Christian spirituality you've inherited and how you're living that out. So I think that's really fascinating. I think it's very timely for America, but for me as a Canadian, it's very fascinating too. And having just come back from South Africa, there's, there are, yeah. there are striking um, resonances with the story of apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. And I, I think mm-hmm. all, all over the world, um, you know, his, his title is very jarring and striking, Reconstructing the Gospel, but he's asking us to look at the the way the particular Christian spirituality that we're living out has developed in the context of the our, our, our own heritage, where we came from, the people who loved God before us. And it really, really challenging, but really exciting, I think, with, with like I say, huge social justice and spiritual formation, and you can't really separate those two things, implications. So I'm going to eat my Wheaties and look forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to it. I think, I think if, if there ever was a chance for empathetic listening, here it is. Here it is. Well... There you have it. Of course, you can register for the book club at renabare.org backslash book club.